Okay, so it's my great pleasure today to welcome Claire Ellis, the Managing Director of JPC, to the Future Visual podcast, Building New Realities. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Great. Yeah, really looking forward to chatting with you. So from what I understand with your, your company at JPC, you know, you, you work with clients in um, delivering bids, delivering new experiences, and we obviously dive into that um, throughout the talk. You know, largely the, the purpose of the, of the podcast is, you know, as the title suggests, building new realities. You know, so much of business, so much of interaction is the feeling we're left with uh, uh, upon either touching with a brand or, to, or interacting with an office. And uh, at Future Visual, we're really interested in how technology can help help that, but obviously the, the underlying uh, uh, emotion that happens in any of those kind of transactions is the feeling that we come away from it with. So yeah, just want to tell me a little bit about JPC, just tell me a bit about your background, how you got to be MD there. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, well, so yes, as you touched on, JPC is a strategic sales and marketing consultancy. What that fundamentally means is we work with some really sort of complex and disruptor brands, predominantly in B2B, they're global, they're sort of tech, telco, fintech, construction, um, logistics and engineering, and a lot of those industries around that. So they're, they're pretty typically quite complex and dealing in quite complex industries as well. Um, and I think what JPC exists for is ultimately we're trying to help them humanize. We want to help them focus their message and all it's all about how do we help them cut through, stand out, and then really all of that driving towards winning more business. We are very much, I mentioned with sales and marketing, and we do have a really sort of heavy emphasis on winning business and quite a, quite a you know, proven track record at, at doing that. Um, and a part of that means that we're always also looking at the end customer, because I think our clients are sometimes so sort of obsessed with the product and the solution or the thing they're trying to build they can lose sight of the, the end consumer, the person that's ultimately going to be affected. So that's where we sort of really drill down. Um, and I think, how old is JPC now? We're 23 years old. Um, so we're pretty well established as an agency. Um, and we've designed ourselves so that we really mirror our customers' um, sales cycles. So right from how to help them better target their customers, how to pursue those customers, um, and then, as I mentioned, how to sort of win them, but then, of course, keep retaining those those clients. And uh, and that means that we've helped some really quite big brands and big names like BT Global Services, as they were then, um, Galliford Trying Construction, Scanska, Vodafone. Um, we've helped them build those sort of customer journeys and win really significant key accounts and bids and tenders um, over that sort of last 23 years. Um, just talking about myself really quickly. I mean, my role as MD is obviously, as you'd expect and hope, is to really set and lead the overall sort of vision and direction for JPC. But obviously that means we're constantly testing and challenging how relevant is our offer to, you know, how our customers' worlds are continually evolving and changing as well. So we have to keep adapting and particularly because such a large part of our business is working with those tech brands and their world is rapidly moving so um it does mean that i need to stay quite close to the front line so i'm i'm very fortunate that i i do 
engage on a daily basis with some you know senior clients in those key organizations and I'm really helping them develop their strategy their direction their overall planning and then really leading my team to devise the right creative strategy to to address those those goals and ambitions that they have. Excellent so you've, you've always been attracted to the creative side to the sort of you know, let's call it the bleeding edge of what's available and then perhaps as you know at JPC you sort of stabilized a, a, a bit in um, working with cutting edge technologies but obviously make sure it's packaged in a way that clients can can understand it and justify it. Yeah I think that's it and I think what's been what's kept me at JPC and been most I need a challenge as most of us do and I think the challenge at JPC is you know, we are, because we're working with those complex brands often, you know, frankly, it's pretty dry, it's complex subject matter, it's, you know, our clients are very sort of stuck in talking about the product and the feature, and I love that. I love being the one to sort of sit there and ask the so what questions. Mm. And, you know, I've been challenged many times by our clients to say, you're not going to be able to make this something creative, and, uh, you know, I'm a tourist, it's a red rag to the tourist bull. I love a challenge like that because I absolutely believe there is a simple creative human story in even the most complex and, and dry of subjects. So, uh, so yes, I think that's, that's what is exciting about being in JPC and working with the types of clients that we do today. And what are the sort of typical product types and experiences that you develop? Um, okay, well, we work on quite a few different experiences um i mean our core we have um three new uh, three specific proposition areas um and as i've mentioned they're all really designed around following the end-to-end -end customer journey so uh one is all around how we help our clients to define new brand value and ultimately what that means is we build brands we create um very surgically focused verticalized value propositions for our clients and they're very much sort of aligned around the customers and the industries that they're trying to engage with so you know brand on steroids if you like um, then we have our whole sort of driving awareness and engagement arm which is all of the sort of highly targeted hyper personalized proactive engagement programs so that's things like ABM um, thought leadership led content event programs and digital and physical customer experiences, which uh, I think we'll come on to a bit more later. And I think everything is about putting the customer at the center and then building those journeys around them. Um, and then the third arm, quite big arm of our business is our, you know, helping clients win more business. So that covers probably three key areas, which is um, sales enablement. So we're actually training and equipping the sales guys on the front line um, to have more strategic conversations with key individuals at you know across different levels of their accounts because very often the problem they have is they're they're stuck you know engaging perhaps at a technical level or a you know construction decision maker level and they need to actually sort of push their way up and be talking to the c-suite a little bit more or different decision makers so it's all about sort of really training them but also giving them very innovative sales tools to be able to adapt and, and pivot a bit more to have those types of conversations um, then the, the big arm of JPC, the strategic bids and tenders support. Um, so that's ultimately, we, we offer an end-to-end -end bid service where we go into our client organizations and we pretty much work as an extension of their bid team. We help them with the strategy, with the frameworks, with the answer planning, 
right down to sort of writing the proposals with them, um, to creatively packaging them and really giving them that kind of creative edge and stand out. And then um, we actually also do a whole, again, training program. So we learn so much when we're working with bid teams on the ground. So we're looking at how do we channel that into a bid improvement program. I mean, just to give you a quantified stat on that, um, we took a very large tech telco brand who were, um, I think they were at the time winning one in five bids and we moved the dial and got them to a three in five win rate. So, you know, it's, it's pretty transformative stuff. Um, and actually JPC at the moment is tracking 100% win rate on all the bids and tenders we've supported over the last um, year. Um, and I think we're probably tracking about five, six billion in initial contract value secured over the last sort of four to five years. So it's big numbers, it's big stuff. And it's, you know, it's it's the sort of share price moving outcomes for our clients as well. Yeah. So yeah. sort of stuff that I love, makes me very proud. And then the, the final arm of win more business again, I mean, CX runs through everything we do. So we create physical experiences, customer um, experience centers or digital customer experiences that basically allow our customers to demonstrate complex solutions or outcomes to customers on a very personalized level. Because um, obviously one of their big challenges, particularly in tech, you know, you might be talking about a whole sort of infrastructure um, program and some of it's going to affect multiple stakeholders, you know, employees, head office, consumers, so it's finding ways to actually sort of step the customer into the shoes of all of those individuals and bring that to life in a very sort of storytelling led way, but also having an environment that adapts around the customer themselves and makes it feel like it's built around them. So um, yeah, that's, that's fundamentally the core service areas for JPC. Very good. I mean, yeah, very impressive. Congrats on those stats as well. If you're tracking a 100% win rate this year, how many people have you got at JPC? Uh, you know, we're, we're not a huge organisation. We're about um, 20 people in our core team. Yeah. Um, and we, but we do have a, a pretty substantial network of partners and contractors we work with. I mean, as you can imagine, we, I mean, we physically build customer experience centres. I think we built something like 23 for BT across the world. Um, so, and then with the bids and tenders, you can imagine as well, we need to adapt quite quickly to different types of industries and sectors so where we have um, sort of more partners and contractors is around sort of vertical specialisms or particular build teams for those types of programs um, but yeah the core nucleus is we're a hard-hitting yeah, I mean, we get a lot done with 20 people and you can then hire in another four exactly exactly ones. it's all about keeping what we're what we're very very purist about is the strategy, the content, the overall sort of creative stays absolutely at the heart in our core team. Mm. And, you know, JPC actually was, was founded by our founder, Jeanette Pritchard, um, I think in 1998. And it was founded on the basis of staying a certain size and not getting too big because all of them, both the two co-founders and myself, have all come from those bigger agencies where you end up you know, having the A team, the B team, the C team, and frankly, the, the strategy gets watered down and watered down and the client's sort of left dealing with, you know, a bunch of juniors who weren't involved in that strategy. And we really, really fight hard to, to you know, against that model. 
So, yeah, uh, yeah. Way, to, way to lose a client, isn't it? When they when you've had a good relationship and then you think it's safe and then they get handed down the line and don't have a exactly. great experience. Exactly. No, we will stay small and intimate if we, you know, if we possibly can, if I have anything to do with it. Very interested in what you said on building verticalized value props. Um, is that when uh, a client or customer might come to you with an idea uh, around a new brand, new service they want to put out there? and you kind of create what the uh, ecosystem for that could look like. So almost like prototyping brand or product development for that client. Um, yes and no, it's, it's absolutely that, but it, it's often, um, again, let me use an example to try and bring it to life. So, um, and sorry to keep mentioning BT, we do, we do have many other clients, but they're just a good example. So um, BT, probably wind back six, seven years ago, um, they very much sell, they've got, you know, hundreds of products and they very much sell those products perhaps by a particular product area. So it might be, you know, they're selling their network capabilities or they're selling their um, unified comms capabilities and things like that. Um, but they end up being quite silo and they end up not really transcending a customer vertical, if you like. So um, they, uh, they actually had a, a new sort of, target of well not a new target they needed to take to sort of do a really quite big aggressive um, hit on the retail sector in the UK this is quite a few years ago it was a time that the retail sector as it as it is now was was really struggling the high street was suffering um, BT had launched their infinity broadband at the time um, and could see that this could be a real catalyst for change for retail but they didn't really have a way of saying to retailers hey we understand all of your different sort of pain points and problems. And we know that they transcend, you know, how to take the consumer from an online shopping experience to making sure the experience is the same in store to, you know, what they experience when they then go home. Um, so what we did was work with BT to really reorganize their products and services around customer pain points, around customer challenges and issues, and then sort of wrap all of that in a, go to market brand and strategy and you know talk to customers in these verticalized outcomes rather than going hey you can have one of these and two of those and three of those so that's one example um but yes to the other example you talked about it can be that we are building a brand um you know that's that's absolutely designed around a particular sort of cluster of individuals and it's, so it's more than just saying, well, we're just going to stick a logo on it and it's going to appeal to all individuals. It's really about taking it right down to a set of audiences and making sure that everything from its purpose to its values to its external sort of um, expression is all around those individual sort of customer groups, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And uh, interested to know sort of how targeted you might go on that, because, you know, if you looked at a group of people like gamers, let's say. Yeah. Now, gamers is a very interesting area at the moment for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. you know, in the context of building new realities, we know we're sort of seeing the, the emergence of the metaverse, um, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps a reflection of having read many sci-fi books. But, you know, <laughs> we're, we're sort of at that point now where, you know, obviously there's, you know, there's widespread connectivity, people are able to connect together on all sorts of devices. And we're seeing, we're seeing sort of like cross pollination of events, you know. So in a game like 
fortnight you're starting to see music concerts and then you're seeing something like Roblox, which my daughter plays. Um, and then, you know, they're now having concerts in it. You're seeing these huge IPOs for these, you know, what, what even 10, you know, 10 or five years ago would have been like, oh no, that's a game. Um, yeah. And now they're like, no, no, this is a place. Yeah. And this is a place where, where, where people go to hang out. But I, we'll get into that in a bit. I mean, going back to the, the point we were talking, which is about targeted groups. Um, so yeah, I would imagine an example might be for a BT product launch. It's like, well, let's look at gamers. Uh, and, and then you might want to break it down. You're like, okay, well, let's look at gamers who are, you know, 15 to 20. They play, um, you know, specific type of fighting game. You know, how small might those groups get? Basically, it also in terms of, of age or... Oh, well, there's another question. Would it be in terms of just age or would it be in terms of activity? Would it be like, okay, well, we're targeting the people that spend a thousand hours a year or whatever, whatever the metrics are? Yeah, I, I, you're hitting on a, a, a subject that's right at the heart of everything we do, actually, because, um, and again, because we are predominantly B2B, um, we are, I mean, again, you'll, you'll probably know this stat, but um, the B2B world is is changing and it's becoming the challenge, the challenge that most of our customers are facing right now is they've gone from having, you know, two or three, four maybe decision makers involved in a purchase to something like, I think the last Gartner stats were, um, it's anything upwards of seven and it's more often than not nine decision makers. And of course there's new roles emerging all the time. You know, you've got chief data officers and chief sustainability officers and so there's this, there's this ever-evolving, shifting landscape of stakeholders. Um, and what our clients typically do is that they have one project champion. You know, they, all of their time and effort has been invested in really getting to know intimately, um, you know, the, as I say, maybe it's the, the, the IT director or in a construction setting, it might be, you know, the construction director. But suddenly they realise there's all these other people that they haven't been man-marking and haven't built any sort of relationship with within those organisations. Um, so, yes, we go right down to individual customer personas. Um, you know, we map out what those individuals are. And very often, of course, you know, our clients aren't idiots. Of course, they have data. They have some level of persona on their customers they tend to sit at quite an analytical data-driven level so when we ask the questions of you know well what are their implicit drivers what are they preoccupied with outside of these professional requirements um you know it's surprising how little often they know or understand you know so we we do frankly it's tantamount to you know social media stalking we do you know looking at press pr looking at and, and research groups to really get down to that so there'll be a there'll be a personal um, human persona for every single sort of key stakeholder. Obviously, coming back to your question, there are other campaigns where you know we are doing more volume-based activities. Um, and then yes, we are equally looking at you know very, very specific demographics, you know, of groups of that share particular sort of um, profiles, um, challenges, um, nuances. So so yes. It's, but I think that is the biggest change in B2B is how much more hyper-personalized it's needing to become in order to, to really truly reach beyond that sort of gatekeeper relationship. Well, I guess that's also a reflection of general hyper-personalization 
right? I mean, how much information about people is now available? You know, mm. we rewind um, 10 years, you know, you'd start to have a bit more of a feel, but, but now, you know, you can really dig in um, yeah. and find that information. So I guess it's just a reflection of the two. Of course, it requires more effort, more legwork, more research, and you perhaps feel like, oh, wow, we're, we're really going to some depths here. And you know, to use your example of stalking or espionage, <laughs> this is a fine line, isn't there, between, yeah. uh, you know, really digging into a person and, and actually doing it in the spirit of understanding whether the, the, the product and the service you're offering is a good fit. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and just picking up on the point you made there, um, you know, it, we talk about constantly, I'm sure you're familiar with it, you know, it's the rise of consumerization, isn't it? It's not only the fact that so much more information is available about these individuals, more to the point, we as individuals are, you know, you and I, we are professionals and consumers and we have a level of expectation now because frankly, there's no excuse to be treated like a kind of, you know, a number in a spreadsheet anymore. We expect that level of sort of hyper-personalization in the ways that brands interact with us. We have a much more sort of visibility of them as well and what their values and what they stand for. And yeah, frankly, we are an increasingly impatient and frankly disloyal audience. I think um, one of my favorite stats in my keynotes, and I know it's a bit of an old one, but it's, it's so true. And it's, I think the average attention span now of every individual is less than a goldfish, you know, so, mm -hmm if you don't get it right and you don't engage with people as human beings in a very personalized and very relevant way, um, then frankly, I think you, you, you're out right at the, right off the bat, you're out. And that's, yeah. that's something that we're still having to coach a lot of our clients in though. Yeah. I mean, one of the themes I'm particularly interested in is how, um, you know, the, the, the rapid development of consumer, um, technology has kind of outpaced office technology mm -hmm. or enterprise technology. You know, if you look back 20 years, which sounds like a, lo a long time, and it is a long time, but for these kind of big shifts we're talking about, it's actually quite a, a short amount of time. You know, 20 years ago, if you, you know, when you went into the office, you still went there because, oh, I need this bit of kit because it's at the office, or I need, you know, I need to use the whatever it was because it was only at the office and there was no way you were ever going to have one at home and then you know in the last six years how consumer tech has just outstripped and run past um you know enterprise based services I, you know I, I was always intrigued when companies started doing a hey bring your own device because we're mm -hmm. being like really user friendly and it's like well actually it's because you're this is typically for companies with hundreds of thousands of employees but or, you know getting up to that number but but typically because the device they had in their pocket or that they were using personally was just way better than uh, what was available at the office and and this is and this is sort of tipping of the balance which is not only on the sort of the the, the hardware available to, mm. to you and i and therefore we expect our employee or our b2b to be as up to speed to us and quite often they're not and also the, the you know the speed with which two services like a airbnb how we can now you know, as previously you might have gone to a, you know, a travel agent or, a, you know, some kind of intermediary to access this database. It's all just there as we're walking to the post office. And I think that's really shifted the balance of power uh, yeah. in terms of expectation and just kind of service uh, generally. 
I think you're absolutely right. And just picking back up on your example earlier of, um, well, it's the themes we've both been touching on here that, you know, A, the expectation now of us as individuals, because we can have everything instantly on demand, don't even need to think about it because things are served to us intuitively and, you know, they're almost preempting our next thought or move. But I think going back to your point about gamification and actually when you consider what's been I hadn't actually thought about it until you said it then, you know, six, seven years. I don't know how long SimCity been around, but it's been around such a long time. So this kind of technology has been there and been available in our sort of consumer lives. Um, and it's getting ever more sophisticated and intelligent and, you know, building communities that go way beyond the parameters of just the game um, and creating that sort of lasting connection. I've actually got a friend who's... Um, pretty obsessed with uh, the Star Trek game, which I knew nothing about um, until I met him and he showed me. But I'm, I'm astounded at the sophistication of, it. well, A, it's, it's been very, very cleverly designed because it's designed to hook people in and they will never leave because they run events, they run flash events, they run competitions. There's something going on seemingly every single day there's message boards, there's communities, you create teams and allies and leaders. And so the sophistication in this game, which is all delivered on a mobile, just really blew my mind. But I think what's interesting is in fact, the, the sort of the business world has been relatively slow to catch up. I think we are. And then I think if you look at what happened this year with COVID and the pandemic, um, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the impact that's had on our business and I don't mind admitting as a you know as a managing director of a creative agency that relies on teams coming together and brainstorming and flip charts and you know pads and pens and post-it notes I was one of the last bastions that would say oh no no we'll never be able to you know have a fully mobile working model because you know how are we going to keep that sort of sense of connection and creativity um, now this this last year hasn't been without its challenges, but um, it's really it was so surprising how quickly we adapted. We're all working in this remote world now. I think we're all equally aware of the challenges that's brought, and we're learning fast. But um, I do think now it's kind of forced the next evolution of technology to to better learn from some of these sort of consumer platforms to enable this more interactive, immersive world. I still think we've got a way to go, um, but I, I think it's really, really interesting and very excited to see where it's going to go over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, to be honest. Yeah, let's talk about the COVID effect. Yeah, we, we, we mentioned it before we started recording. Um, yeah, I mean, similarly, you know, we're, we're a small company and always thought, you know, as we're about to embark a big project that you know, having people on site was always going to be preferable. That was always your first option. And before you even looked at having people remotely, you're like, well, it's going to, you know, it's going to cause problems. It's not going to be as good. Um, you know, for us, mainly being software developers, actually the, re the remote thing has brought a level of discipline, uh, mm. which has been hugely beneficial just in terms of the sort of systems, the scheduled stand-ups, the feedback, you know, we were kind of living in Slack anyway, even when we were in an office together. Yeah. Or quite often, yeah. rather than ask someone a question, even if they're the other side of the room. <laughs> yeah, just, each other. So in some ways, it's an evolution of that. You know, it, it yeah. was, we were already starting to do that. But yeah, just in terms of the, um, 
the and the lack of distraction the people you know the people often vaunt the, the famed water cooler moment but I, I often found it would have an effect the other way where you'd be constantly kind of interrupted and asked questions and you know yeah, if yeah. You wanted to get anything done you'd have to you know literally go and put yourself in a, in a, in a cubicle, cubicle and you know say do not disturb um so it's had some huge benefits and obviously in, in terms of the talent pool that you can reach that's massively beneficial it's brought discipline i think you know there's some aspects to to, to working at home that people enjoy i think now that it's nearly been nine months we you know we do in going into 21 whether you know there appears there'll be some kind of um vaccine or let's say by the middle of the year we we won't be in these lockdowns and tears hopefully um but i think the meeting um physically will have to be thought about more creatively you know i what okay we're going to spend time face to face and what is what is the purpose of that time spending face to face and it's not just going in a room together and sitting at a computer and, yeah. and bashing and bashing out your work because we can all do that remotely now so it's a very interesting opportunity also challenging because everything is in life um about okay so what do we actually do with these moments when we meet up physically and in yeah. there's a there's a social aspect that it's nice to actually be face to face so maybe that just falls in the social camp and you do a social activity but in terms of the the, the creative interaction mm. and whether we can do that outside the screen now because obviously everything's so if you go oh i've got an idea let me show you you know, our, our yeah. first reaction now is to go, oh, I'll show you on the screen or here's the link. It's like, how do we bring back creativity without diving back to the screen? And I don't think it has to be a huge amount. I think, you know, you can meet up once a month physically to go, right, we're just going ch to chat about the products. And I think this is a really, this is a really exciting opportunity to sort of put more value on the physical time you spend together. Because we know we can all be super disciplined, hyper efficient, working in these kind of remote ways now yeah no i think you're absolutely right and uh, i yeah as you and i were talking about earlier we've you know we bridges sorry we have redesigned our working model um entirely around this whole concept because um having now realized oh yeah we absolutely can run the business remotely um we've thought well what do we want to use our office space for and our office time we've actually downsized our office footprint uh we've created a sort of more open plan flexible sort of working environment and we're absolutely yeah it will be coming together to brainstorm to create you know prototype things to um you know just and actually just to do the human chat the, chat the, the coffee yeah. yeah yeah as much as um you know we can do so much over zoom and we can do so much through sort of collaboration technology i just think and it's something um we picked up with some of our clients as well. The, the the things that are missed are, you know, you come onto a, I mean, as an agency, we're often pitching now on Zoom. And um, I was chatting with one of our founders, um, Nick Pierce, and uh, he was saying, you know, we're Claire, we're just missing that moment though, for them to understand anything about our business and our personality and our culture that they would feel when they walk through our front door ordinarily. Cause you know, we've got a lovely trendy branded office and the logo and the, you know quotes on the wall and all those things and a bit of time to talk while you're making the coffee and just know a bit more about each other mm. on a human level so um we're trying to do two things at the moment actually we're trying to 
use our creativity to create, um, you know, almost like little, dare I call it a bum settler, I don't know, it's one of those um, uh, things that we share with clients before we come on to a presentation meeting and it's just fun and it's quirky and it's human and it's, you know, it's each of the team members saying hi, I'm so-and-so, a bit about me, not too long and certainly not self-indulgent, but it's it's finding clever ways to bring back that human connection in a digital world but equally when we as you said when we then go back to the physical world I think it'll be really interesting to see how we have evolved and how we can bring some of the digital back into physical because mm -hmm. so for example again with some of the customer experience centers we build you know we are putting very very sophisticated collaboration software in there I you know I know you guys build some incredibly clever VR settings where people can actually collaborate and work together. And I think what's nice is then when you come together into the physical space, you can flip up some of those things that you've been working on remotely and sort of really get around them together and sort of touch and explore and experiment a little bit more. So I, I think it's exciting. I think it can only strengthen, but it will be interesting to see if we can sort of hang on to some of the disciplines and behaviours we've learned and not revert back to that slightly lazy, well, let's just stop at someone's desk and interrupt them because just because they're there. Um, I think that's that's going to be going to be interesting to see how we handle that transition, I think. And how often are you, are you going back into the office, you or your team? What's the, what, what's the sort of roadmap for that? Uh, so right now we're, we're not back. We've been fully... Um, remote since um, the first lockdown. Um, we were planning to go back um, sort of end of September, but of course things changed again. Um, so we, we've kept a fairly sort of flexible viewpoint about it, but um, our intention is when we do go back, um, we're thinking sort of February, March at the moment, again, obviously depending on what happens, great news today about the vaccine. But um, yeah, so I think we'll probably only open the office up for a couple of days a week and those days will be used, as we said, for real sort of planning, collaboration sessions where we work together. Um, doesn't even necessarily have to be all people in at the same time. We're going to have to think about what's helpful and beneficial around probably different projects and things that we're working on. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, the rest of the time we'll, we'll continue the mobile working model. Um, yeah. And but we've, you know, we've really had to evolve our. It, again, it's funny. It's that sort of cobbler's child, isn't it? We we do so much of this for our clients, but we weren't necessarily fully yeah. utilizing things that we put in place for our clients. So like you, yeah, we're, we're using a lot more sort of collaboration sort of platforms and technology ourselves. But as I mentioned, it's finding ways to also keep that creativity and, and fun elements to, to keep it human in the meantime when we're not physically together. So let's talk about uh, sort of the some of the immersive experiences you've built and this creating, you know, a bit of building a new reality, the sense of place, you know, what you're trying to do in those spaces and perhaps, you know, what are, what are the what projects you've most enjoyed working on in terms of delivering, delivering a uh, new experience? Thought you'd never ask. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, oh, God. Yeah, we I think we're really, really lucky in that we've we do we have had the opportunity to sort of create. Um, and I love the fact you use this, the phrase a sense of place, because actually that's been really, really core to JPC's sort of philosophy from, from the outset. Um, we actually uh, took on the building opposite the BBC um, TV studios many years ago now, I think it was about 2009, 2010. Um, it was uh, the centre house 
um, when the BBC moved out and went up to Manchester, they left this great big, I think it's 120,000 square foot empty building. Um, it was an ugly building. It was a bit of an eyesore and uh, it's a slight tangent, sorry, but it will make sense in a minute. And uh, our founders saw a sort of really exciting opportunity. There was, again, it was on the back of the recession. Property was, you know, difficult and particularly finding property for creative industries was really hard. Um, so long story short, they proactively pitched to the BBC and said, let us take on this building and turn it into a creative media campus. Mm. It's a co-working space. Um, we ended up sort of writing the, the pitch for the BBC. It was put out to tender. We won the tender. And yeah, we took on and ran um, the campus for the best. I think it only ended up closing last year or earlier this year. And um, the point of that, it was all about the sort of sense of place and creating a community. The building was ugly, as I mentioned, we called the campus ugly and the website was lovely on the inside.com because it was all about yes. what does this stand for? What is our sort of ethos? What's our sort of way of being? And um, every person that went into that building was interviewed rigorously. They had to really sign up to the philosophy. It was low rent. It was rough and ready, it was raw, but it was all about what you were prepared to sort of give back and how you sort of shared within that community to create a real sort of sense of place. So that's that's a quite sort of different example, but um, just gives you a bit of a sense of what drives JPC because it's really about putting purpose and brand at the heart of all the experiences we create. But um, more recently, um, we've, we work, we've worked on some really diverse things. So if I wind back to probably late 2016, 2017, fantastic project, Dimension Data, who are now um, part of NTT. Uh, they were South African headquartered company at the time. They were, um, they'd basically picked up, won the um, program with the Tour de France. So they were the tech, tier one technology partner. They were building a platform that was bringing the sort of fan experience um, so bringing all of the data to, to the actual sort of live TV experience as well. So being able to see what was happening in real time um, through this sort of data platform that was running in real time. Um, they'd actually run it the year before. Um, they turned it around on a very, very quick timescale. And of course they tried to then bring their customers to the tour to sort of show them what they were doing, but also um, try and connect it to what that meant they could deliver for their customers from a business outcome point of view. Um, being candid, it, it wasn't as successful as they'd hoped in the first year because they couldn't make the connection between this fantastic, you know, world leading sport event and, you know, customers and how it applied to their business. Um, they also had an issue that there wasn't enough sort of business content, so they couldn't get customers there from a Sort of bribery and corruption point of view. Um, so long story short, we um, pitched and won uh, the with the opportunity to design an executive briefing centre. Uh, we recommended that it was a mobile centre because, of course, the tour is ever moving, and we had to put an entire sort of end-to-end -end customer experience into a. I think it was two hundred and fifty-six square foot truck, something like that. Um, and everything from showing the sort of data analytics platform running live, linking up to the data truck, streaming the, the tour itself into the truck, um, and then showing them all of the different sort of cloud solutions, mobile solutions, and bringing it back to that sort of business conversation. Um, 
and that one of the elements of that that really was you know sticks in my mind it 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 was a blend a 360 degree blend because we built bespoke furniture that was designed to look like different sort of cycling elements um we brought in a gamification element where we actually put bikes on the truck itself and the customers would get on it and cycle and they would wear one of the little microchips and then they'd they'd be competing against a live leaderboard and they'd see the data and the stats running in real time so it really humanized the story for them and made it fun and immersive and engaging and that so yeah there are many more aspects to it but that one um and the truck sort of followed key stages of the tour as well so the logistics of that program was extraordinary um hugely complex um uh, and by the way the program overall um achieved a, a four to one roi so it absolutely met the objective of making sure that customers completely you know once they left the experience they totally understood and had had the opportunity to sort of collaborate with dimension data in the truck mm. and to see how they could sort of apply these to their own business scenarios mm. um another quick standout project was um customer innovation center that we built for experian it actually um launched in september last year it's in heron tower um i think the reason i this one's particularly sort of emotive for me as a story is because they when experian first approached us um it was really obvious they've got a really strong track record um they achieve really powerful outcomes um for their clients across the world through data science and analytics but and actually, I think they are recognized in the top 50 most innovative companies by Forbes. But actually, coming back to that, how we sort of respond as consumers and professionals, we all have a sort of consumer experience of Experian, and we tend to think of them as a credit bureau. Um, and they weren't really helping them, themselves because they had something like 400 quite siloed products. They didn't have sort of integrated value propositions. Um, and so they needed a way of really shifting perceptions and helping customers see how they were supporting sort of the financial life cycle for, for them and for their end consumers all the way along that journey. Because they deal with everything from instantaneous sort of decisioning on a consumer when they're applying for a, I don't know if you or I are applying for a credit card or a mortgage, you know, date, there's all that data crunching in the background instantaneously to tell Barclays or whoever, whether, you know, we're a credible person for that product, but it's also making sure that you're getting a 360 degree view of the individual and it's offering different products on the flight. Anyway, all sorts of stuff going on, but, um, you know, selling it in 400 silo products uh, was not winning them any business. So what, what was beautiful about it was it was a blank canvas. Experian had no integrated end-to-end -end customer journey. They had no sort of scenarios of how they could group these things together within a, a sort of physical environment and they literally had a blank canvas half a floor of heron tower for us to play with so we i think we won the pitch because we looked at every single touch point of the customer journey we didn't start in the physical space we started with the onboarding system the agenda building the content platform that would personalize every single piece of content through the customer journey within the physical space and interact with the physical installations and demos and then become a sort of ABM platform for them after the customer left the physical experience because it would keep that two-way sort of dialogue going with the customer as well. So, um, and yeah, it was 6,000 square feet and we took them from 
different zones where, um, you know, there was a digital sort of check-in experience where that we're bringing to life experience technology right from the first touch point with facial recognition scanning and um, having sort of data appearing in interesting and very, again, human ways around you. So rather than boring you to death with lots of business data, there'd be interesting facts like, you know, how tall the Eiffel Tower is and how many visitors a day. And we'd, we'd use the sort of the landscape to project data over the top. And then all the way through to a really fabulous, great big sort of mega multi-touch screen where the customer could look at a 3D city and touch on these hotspots and view individual sort of pain points. And then we moved them into a sort of wrapper, 180 wraparound area where they'd step into the shoes of the consumer and follow a series of day in the life scenarios to see their challenges and pain points and the outcomes that were enabled behind the scenes. And then we moved them into a, a sort of object recognition touch table where they would put buildings down on the table to view different case studies and see different innovations that they were working on. And then finally they had a co-creation lab, um, not unlike the lab that you, you guys have in a sort of virtual space. It's very much where Experian gets together, rolls up sleeve with the customer and they prototype and sort of literally end up coming out of that, that environment with you know new sort of digital onboarding journeys for their customers or new decisioning engines and, and so on. So. That, uh, and then the exciting part of all of that was, um, and we're, this is where the world is changing for us now, we've been looking at how do we, because of course, <laughs> the sad irony, that, that centre actually, uh, so the experience won the bronze award last week at the B2B Marketing Awards for oh, well best use of digital techniques and technologies, but the centre has been closed since March, it only launched last September, so what we're looking at with Experience now is how do we virtualize you've got all of these digital installations and experiences mm. no reason why you can't be bringing a customer into a sort of 3d immersive version of that world and go through the same journey you've got so much content here that mm. needs to be put to use so uh there is a vr version of it that we built for a sort of sales training event but we're looking at ways of taking that to the next level now to bring customers into it and give them as close to the physical experience as we can. Sorry, I kind of went off on a bit of a tangent there, but... Uh, no, no, it's, 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 it's really, really nice sort of breadth of uh, case studies that you've demonstrated there. Um, and interesting, you know, they've ranged from 250 square foot to 6,000 square foot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and what you've just touched on there with Experian, that you put all this, this effort in, but ultimately it's closed. Um, whilst you've done mo a lot of the hard work, which is understanding the journey, building the story, working out how long people are going to be at certain bits of content, you know, that all takes a, a, a long time. But it, it brings me on to, to something very interesting, which is because obviously at Future Visual, we you know, build um, immersive content. And one of our kind of guiding principles has been providing access to situations and scenarios that are either physically impossible or prohibitively expensive. Obviously, mm. when you want to build a 80,000-seat stadium or whatever the bit of content is, it's uh, cheaper to do that um, using immersive digital content than it is to build a thing in real life and just to have this ability to make it accessible on any device. Now, I know you've had a look, um, I think, last week. Uh, oh, no, it's this week, wasn't it? On um, At Vision XR, our platform, that people can access uh, on VR, desktop or mobile. How do you see sort of immersive tech or that kind of experience affecting your industry? Oh, 
hugely. I mean, I think just exactly for the reasons I've just talked about, um, you know, we are like yourselves actively collaborating with our clients to say, well, okay, um, just because you can't bring your customers into a physical environment anymore and prototype and collaborate and or even just demonstrate some of your solutions and capabilities, there's no reason why you can't step them into a virtual simulation of that world and um, you know give them the same sort of customer journey and in fact it's more powerful than that because one of the things we I you know we I've mentioned it several times in this conversation we are all about hyper personalization to the individual mm. so having these immersive virtual worlds means it's much much easier to change the entire setting according to the customer coming in um so for example you know if one day they're doing a banking demo everything can be simulated to be a banking environment if it's a retail demo the next day you can so you can have all of these sort of sessions preset um you can change content via the cms you can make everything totally and utterly targeted around that customer coming in but i think where it's even more exciting now and seeing how and again i, I was I was very impressed with your demo. Um, you know, we're doing some similar things, but I, I loved the fluidity with which um, Matt and Ben, I think, were able to pick things up, share things. You know, there was no there was no lag. I was watching from a mobile device. I still felt a part of it because um, I was I was worrying about the sort of the VR challenge. Um, but I think being able to have that fluidity and being able to genuinely collaborate together and feel like you're standing in a space together um certainly in the the worlds that we're dealing with which as i said predominantly tech and construction you can see the power of that you know construction are some degree lagging behind tech but um increasingly we're both taking to our clients and being asked for you know how do we simulate for our customers what this world is going to look like and feel like and you know, often you're talking about a 10 year construction program mm. to be able to actually walk a customer into that environment and not just walk into it, but, you know, choose substrates and see effects and so on together, I think is, is just incredibly powerful. So very excited to see where it goes. Great. What, what is a, what's an outcome from your work with a client that was kind of unexpected? Um, oh, that's a good question. What did I, I put some notes on this one earlier because I thought, uh, um, I think, I think it was, I, I think one that sort of changed the approach um, was probably the one I just mentioned, um, Experian. Mm. Um, I think the reason being was that it was so it was surprising for us and surprising for for them that we managed to create something that was so truly integrated so i say the the pitch that was briefed out to us was we'd like a physical experience center and they were very focused on the sort of architecture and the environment it was almost an interior design brief um i think when we turned up and we started talking about the invitation that went to the customer and the digital booking system and the iPad that we named, we called it a passport that would become the, you know, the customers um, support, supporting their journey all the way through, that it would then actually support them beyond their experience, that we could create a sort of ABM strategy around it. So I think 
that was the one that was a, a game changer. I mean, we, we've long been sort of pushing for this with many of our clients, but we would typically end up probably quite stuck in, you know, creating the physical experience and the, the content within that environment. I think Experian were quite sort of brave and more greenfield to allow us to, to really create something that was genuinely integrated and end-to-end. -end. I think there is still things to evolve on that, but, um, you know, I think it, we were all quite surprised at the outcomes and the, the fact that it really did, you know, offer that connection and bring together the virtual and physical customer experience. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, actually, but, uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think it, it, the, the main messaging there is just around the detail yeah, you know, and perhaps how 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 the, how the client was expecting one thing, which was they were thinking about the, you know, yeah. the, what the piece looked like, uh, yeah, versus the comes back to versus the emotion that was created. Absolutely, yeah. The standing in the customer's shoes and walking all the way through it, but start from that very first interaction, that very first touch point, which is actually the moment you reach out and invite them, rather than when they physically arrive. Mm, nice. Uh, and what, what do you wish you'd known when you started out? What could have, what, what took you a decade to realise in terms of, I mean, it sounds like it all comes back to the customer journey. But, um... Yeah, you know what, I, I, I um, was looking at this question earlier and I, I actually don't think there's anything I'd, I wish I'd known because I actually believe that we learn as human beings fundamentally through experience. Mm. There's nothing... I think if someone had told me it, I would have gone, oh, okay, that's, that's brilliant. And that, I wish I'd known that before. I would, the one bit of advice, though, that I was given very early on in my career, which I think sits at the centre of everything I believe in and do, and that really helps us bring the value to our clients, is there's no such thing as a stupid question. You know, it's our job, um, and particularly when we're in a bidding scenario, but I do bring it into everything. I bring it into customer experience every single day. but there is no such thing as a stupid question and I will sit there and say, but so what? A number of times I've been told, you know, they're gonna put a faster intelligent network in and I'm like, brilliant. And what's that going to actually enable for the customer? Because we have to be the ones to translate that into the simplest human outcome. And um, I think when I was very early in my career, I was afraid of, you know, I'd hear all sorts of acronyms and jargon and I'd, I'd think, oh, I'm gonna look really stupid if I, ask someone what that acronym means but I I'm I'm astounded now by how many times I will ask the stupid question and um generally it's greeted with positivity and you know a lot of people saying god I wish someone else had asked me that so uh because it gets us down to the point quickly agreed um what are you curious about right now to be honest I think probably like most of us I am very curious to see what the world looks like post-COVID um, and particularly what I mean is you know what are the lessons we've learned what habits will we keep building on what are we going to you know where will some bad habits creep back in um, you know how much will actually remain virtual how will we create these sort of more blended virtual and physical worlds um, and I, you know in some ways I hope the balance will tip back a little bit that we'll find that perfect blend of virtual and physical so that we you know we don't become too sort of robotic and automated and mm. digital because I, I I do I do see and feel the the impact as well of you know funny enough my my mother 
um, has just started um, over the last two weeks, taking a week off social media. Mm. Because she realized it was just becoming all, you know, all encompassing. And mm. we're all sort of living our lives a little bit vicariously mm. through digital and social media. And I, I was the same. I mean, in this first lockdown, I think I just became obsessed with social media because I was I was needing that human connection. So, yeah, I think I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic for the post COVID world that we'll we'll bring all of these great things with us, but we'll we'll tip the balance back a little bit. Yeah, I think your point also about just being wary of slipping back into old habits, because it's easy for us to, in true to form human nature, to talk about how we're going to learn from the experience and bring it back into our post-COVID world. And then once we're in that post-COVID world, it'll be like, wallop. This yeah. is how we yeah. it. We have to be so mindful and yeah. focused and vocal. Uh, about About bringing those techniques forward. And I think... I think because it's been such a disruptor that we've all risen to, I think floating the, you know, the, the idea of things like, yeah, no email day. Yeah. Know, all these things that get trialed in companies. It's like, well, why the hell not? You know, let's give it a go for three months and see yeah. what happens because there could be some great outcome that we're, we're just not aware of at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think anything moves us away from being excessively digital and back, you know, to uh, enhance our, our human values is good for everyone. And at the very least, it shows you're thinking about people's work environment. Yeah. And, that, and that's worth something in itself, even if the outcome is good, bad or indifferent. Absolutely. Okay, so a bit of a diversion here. I'm gonna ask you, if you had a hundred million pounds to spend on a social program and no red tape, how would you spend it? I, I'm not sure this answer's got anything to do with what we've been talking about, but um, That's fine. I, have a, I have a bit of a personal, um, what's the word, sort of driver. It would actually be to create a program um, that helps children and young adults to better understand how to manage a budget I, and to be equipped for entering the commercial world. Because I, I and maybe it's been um, particularly made more poignant to me by working with clients like Experian because you know they have so many money, uh, money management apps um, you know different tools now for helping people to see their spending habits and make better decisions but I have to say I think we all uh, certainly I did I was a complete idiot through most of my teens and 20s and probably even into my early 30s in terms of my understanding of how to run my life financially you know I thought I was doing brilliantly if I got everything down to the lowest payments possible but of course the interest was going through the roof so I just think helping children and young adults to to have those better sort of commercial foundational skills would be my personal um, project I think probably from a professional point of view and I think it's still linked to the above I still think I th we're seeing more of our clients do it but I, I think there's still room for so much more that organizations collaborate with schools and think tanks and universities and in the projects that will really help us to define the next generation of customer experience because I think you know we all talk about Gen Z and millennials and, and but they you know they really do behave in quite different ways and they have to very they're they're motivated by very different things and actually back to the point we were just talking about they're all perhaps too socially and digitally obsessed so I'm, I'm really keen to sort of see a project that helps us to to get to grips with how the mind learns and adapts and then somehow harness this and apply it to sort of real world solutions and situations so that I think most importantly we hang on to 
some of that sort of humanity and creativity and we don't lose it all to sort of machine learning and AI and mm. automation. So I think finding the balance. Um, but I do think, yeah, if organisations were to spend a little bit more time with some of these schools and, you know, unis and think tank, think tank groups, we could really create something more, more robust. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then finally, um, just to ask if you've got any theories you'd like to share, a particular theory called Salomon's... Solomon's paradox I find really interesting, which is that it's it's easier for an individual to give really sound advice to other people rather than give sound take on sound advice in their own life. Any favourite yeah. theories like that floating around? Oh, I have a favourite one, and I'm, I'm dreadful. I think I'm probably going to forget the the running order of it. But it's it's a um it's a bit of a mantra that we use in every day at JPC. So if I can't remember it, I'm going to have to re-record this bit. But um. It's, I, I love the, the Chinese proverb and it was, it's all about that concept of if you, I think it's if you tell me I'll remember, if you show me I'll learn or no, I'll understand, but if you involve me, I'll learn. And I just, I've probably got that slightly wrong, but the point of it and the principle of it is, you know, it's really about involving individuals and letting them be a part and letting them, you know, touch and feel and engage with experiences and, and really bring different human senses into experiences because that's how we actually you know really do um, emotionally connect with things I don't, there's something called the peak end experience isn't there where we the human brain is programmed to doesn't matter what you do you can create a wonderful experience but the human brain is programmed to remember the kind of final moments of the experience yeah. so I think just finding ways to really make that physical connection in a virtual world um that's something that i love and just yeah making sure that there's different sort of textures and techniques and engagement um in environments so i'm going to go and check the proverb because i'm pretty sure i got that wrong i think there's a few variations of it which is like you know yeah. tell a man how to fish teach yeah. him yeah. and give him a yeah. rod yeah but you, you get the concept yeah. And, and finally, any any book recommendations, either from the sort of business world that you've gone back to over the years, or something recently that you've enjoyed? Yes, there is one. And where have I put it? Hang on one second, because I want to find it on my shelf. Yeah, I'm going to show you. It's called The Slight Edge. Um, so it's The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. Um, this is one of my sort of business, it was, it was given to me by a business coach actually, and um, it's just that lovely sort of concept that everything you, if you do things consistently, no matter how small they are, they can have really sort of, they, they grow and have that massive sort of potential outcome and impact. So it's a little, you can, it can work both ways. You know, if you eat a burger every single day, you know, over time you're gonna gain weight, but if you also make small changes consistently you will reap really big results so uh again it's it's something we've instilled in the jpc way of working that and you, you know often you do you stop things you drop patterns and behaviors so uh, you know our other mantra is pick it back up it's yeah. that slight edge mentality that just keep doing it consistently and you will reap the rewards i think there's another one called atomic habits that's uh, yeah. a, a similar kind of theme to that yeah yeah Lovely. Well, thank you, Claire. It was delightful to talk to you. It's uh, we touched lots of uh, interesting ground that is really relevant to building new building new reality. So, thank you very much. Uh, and where can we find out more about what what you do? Do you have a blog or uh, anything we'd like people to link to? 
Oh, uh, yeah, actually, you can um, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, if you go and look up uh, ThinkJPC on LinkedIn as well and thinkjpc.com, uh, we do have a blog. We regularly publish thought leadership. We run um, webinars, um, podcasts of our own. Um, so, yeah, we and we also have a number of sort of content streams that we share around sort of bid improvement, customer experience. Um, in fact, if you go and have a look, you'll find I did actually do a um, keynote last year at um, a CX event on the uh, the disconnect between the physical and the virtual experience. So uh, you might find that one interesting. I might have listened to that myself. Yeah, I saw on your website you offered uh, a, a download on five ways. Yeah, I think it was five ways you could improve your 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 bid. So lots of good. Yeah, things. yeah, absolutely. Lovely. Thanks again, Claire. Thank you, Tim. Really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to uh, catching up again very soon. Thank you.